from bestsaxophonewebsiteever.com bringing you what I hope to be the best saxophone podcast ever. Here's where I meet with super brilliant folks from the saxophone world who will be sharing their insights, tips, tricks, and whatnot with you to inspire you to improve your craft and have a great time doing it. Alright everyone, today we have Bob Shepard, who is a household name for saxophonists worldwide and he's really done it all. Superstar names such as Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, Peter Erskine, Joni Mitchell, Steely Dan, Stevie Wonder, and many, many, many legends pack his world-class resume. Splitting his time between Los Angeles and New York, Bob's forged working relationships with the best musicians on both coasts. As a first-class multi-woodwind studio sideman, he's played on over 100 movie and television soundtracks and can occasionally be heard soloing on the massively popular television show American Idol. With his new album, Close Your Eyes, Bob recruits Antonio Sanchez, Gabe Noel, John Beasley, and Alan Pasqua, among other greats, to create a sonically rich, interactive jazz experience. As a passionate music educator, Shepard is part-time faculty at the USC Thornton, Thornton School of Music and frequently a guest clinician at colleges across the country. So with that, I welcome you, Bob, to the podcast. Thanks, Dora. Nice to talk to you. Nice to meet you on, uh, on Skype. Yes. Wonders of modern technology here. So I was just wondering to kick it off if you could tell us a little bit about how you got started in music. Uh, quite a long time ago. I hope I can remember. But uh, <laughs> but uh, my father was actually a saxophone clarinet player, a, a part-time player who uh, in his early 20s played the Catskills and, and like that. But he, uh, he, you know, he had music in the house and I used to sit around playing uh, drum, uh, drumsticks on pillows in front of the, the hi-fi along with uh, Dixieland music basically that he loved. And, uh, I don't know, when I was in fifth grade, maybe, he brought home a clarinet one day, and uh, and he got me a teacher, and we had really good, you know, uh, music programs in the schools uh, in the suburbs of Philadelphia where I grew up, and uh, that was that was my first entree, and then, you know, I just sort of uh, uh, liked to, just to find, find uh, melodies and play along with, uh, you know, the records and play along with television, play along with the radio, just trying to find the notes, trying to find the melodies, trying to just sort of, uh, um, you know, play without music, um, you know, was something that just came natural to me. So, uh, um, but, you know, natural course progression of playing in big bands and wind ensembles and, and school and, and, um, and, you know, Saxophone sort of came about uh, two years later, three years later, and uh, was a natural progression. My father was in, uh, you know, sort of Moonlighter bands and brought me along to these rehearsals and and uh, you know was, there was a lot of uh, encouragement in uh, with my friends and certainly in school. And instead of going to the gym, I would go to the uh, the band room, you know, and uh, and pretty soon I got in, you know, just started. Playing in bands, uh, you know, at the Moose Hall or, or you know, the Holiday Inns or uh, whatever. I, I played in, in, you know, every kind of band there there was at a 
remember playing in a soul band in 10th grade that uh, was half black and half white, and we called the Zebras. And, uh, <laughs> and all, I mean, just all kinds of bands. So, you know, um, it was, I was fortunate being uh, around Philadelphia. There was a lot to do, you know. There was a lot of, a lot of places to get uh, experience um, playing. And, uh, and, you know, I think that had a lot to do with me, uh, you know, just learning about music. More, more of that than school, for sure. So was there like a turning point where you decided this is what I want to do with my life or was it like a, a gradual journey? Well, you know, music was uh, uh, such a big part of my life, but my parents really wanted me to be a doctor or dentist or a lawyer or something. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, they... They uh, encouraged me to play, be a great musician, but they didn't really want me to do that for a living. So I, I went to a pre-med course at Ryder College. I uh, was this college in, uh, near Princeton, New Jersey, and uh, to do pre-med. And I would come home with a ton of homework and basically play along with, with Train and Cannonball and Miles. And, and, that, and I just probably almost flunked out. <laughs> wow. So... So at that point, I uh, I decided, well, you know, I better go into music, and I and I and I went to uh, Glassboro State College to get my uh, my undergrad bachelor of education, studying clarinet, and all along the way, I'm playing gigs all over Philadelphia. And, uh, and at that point, you know, I could have just stayed in Philadelphia, but I uh, fortunately because of Manny Album, famous arranger from the 50s and 60s uh, who was teaching uh, at Glassboro. He encouraged me to go to Eastman School of Music for my master's. And uh, I did that and met a bunch of great people that uh, I still play with and still work with um, for composers, etc. And um, so that that was, uh, I was going to move to New York. I always planned to move to New York. And uh, and after I got my, my master's degree, I got this... Uh, call one morning from a guy, uh, Dean of Music at Loyola University down in New Orleans, who was looking for a guy to teach saxophone and teach some jazz courses. And said, oh, and he asked me if I was interested. And I ended up going down there and told myself I would only do it a couple of years, save up some money, and then move to New York. But uh, at that point, when I was ready to do that, it, all my friends from Eastman were moving to L.A. at the time, it seemed. So uh, I, that's how I got it to L.A. I was... Uh, a friend of mine was doing a record, John Seri, very interesting writer and player, um, sort of a cult hero in Europe. Um, now, the music we recorded back then, it, it turns out to be very, very cultish following for this stuff that you can't even get. Um, and uh, but anyway, he, John Seri was responsible for me, uh, you know, moving to Los Angeles, and uh, I've been here ever since. And uh, and that is a whole other life and. Uh, story to how I got to where I, I, I still don't really know how I uh, you know, worked, worked myself into the L.A. scene, but it's sort of just like anywhere else. It's just longevity and, and, and reputation, I suppose. You know. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always curious, like, what are some of the key things that you would attribute your success, both musically and career-wise, to? What are, can you pinpoint some of the things you did that you feel were particularly helpful in your development? Well, you know, it's a, 
it's an interesting question. You know, everybody has uh, you know their own little story about their their path, how they, and it, you never know what what's going to lead, what where that path is going to lead you. So, I would just say, like every time you know I had a gig, um, no matter what it was, I just tried to sound as good as I could, prepare for it, and I think you know I think for me it was a, a, my, my ability to uh, just. Um, sort of be intuitive about the music, what what it needed, you know, and and to deliver that, you know. So, you know, I, I think all that that young experience of playing all kinds of music and uh, was really helpful in me being able to work. Just, you know, frankly, I you know, being a middle class guy, my dad says, Okay, if you're gonna be a musician, you better figure out how to make a living. You know, so uh, I was one of these people that I didn't mind doing all kinds of stuff. You know, I could I could read, I could dub, I could get a good sound clarinet. I figured out how to play the flute. I studied that hard. I could uh, you know play solos on various styles. I could interpret music. So uh, I think that had a lot to do with uh, you know being my just being able to continuously work in mm -hmm. some capacity. You know, and uh, along the way, you know, I was interested in playing jazz. You know, that was always my main. Uh, source of inspiration and uh, and uh, and and sort of governed my, you know, whether I was feeling good about myself, whether I could play some train changes and still stand up in the bandstand and uh, and and deal, you know. And because of that, I spent, when I moved to L.A., I, I uh, had an opportunity to, to uh, audition for Freddie Hubbard. He was looking for a tenor guy, and maybe because I was an East Coast influenced tenor player, you know, sort of a I don't know post train influence player rather than uh, at the time a lot of LA saxophone players were more uh, I don't know just playing a different style and Freddie uh, Freddie liked me and I started uh, six seven eight years I think I played with Freddie on and off and uh, and that opened some other doors for jazz gigs and uh, you know it's just you just never know like who's in the audience and who you're going to meet and what what gig is going to lead to the next gig? Um, it's I remember one one gig I was playing with Randy Brecker at Catalina, this club in Hollywood, and uh, and Walter Becker came to hear Randy, and Walter Becker is one of the Steely Dan guys, and he liked my playing, and that sort of started a you know my um, you know my uh, four year five year uh, relationship with Steely Dan, so. You just never know, and uh, I guess you know when I do clinics around uh, country, you know that's that's what I try to tell people. You know, no matter no matter uh, what you're doing, I don't care if it's a rehearsal, you know, with some friends, and there's some, you know, some just, you're just jam session. You never know who's going to be there that's going to going to um, you know, mention your name. So at least to the next thing, you know, mm -hmm. that's that's mm -hmm. the way it happened for me anyway. It's all about. Know, these relationships and these opportunities that came about. You know, I think it still happens that way. You know, I, I really do. I think music is one of those things that doesn't matter where you get a degree from or uh, or or what you know who you know. It comes down to you know sounding sounding having a good sound and being able to play with other musicians and being able to comprehend music um, you know quickly. You know, and, and so it's this one thing that's that hasn't changed. I think the bottom line of, of uh, being able to just sound good, <laughs> just when you need to sound good, you know. Yeah, 
I mean, one of your gigs that really stands out to me, one of your stints was your stint with uh, Chick Corea, who I just, he's had all the best saxophone players in the world in his band or, or collaborated with them in one way or another. So I'm just curious, uh, what was it like being in one of Chick Corea's groups? It was the Origins group that you were in. So that, yeah, that, that was a, that was incredible for me because, uh, um, not only Chick was, you know, one of my biggest heroes, always had, had been, but, um, you know, I, I knew it was going to be a real challenge, but it turned out to be uh, a group of guys in this group origin that, that were just the greatest guys They became really great friends. And, uh, it was like a little family for a short period of time. And, uh, and it was, I tell you, it was intimidating being on stage with Chick Corea, you know, it was very, uh, taught me a lot and, uh, and trying to. You know, deliver. You know, try, playing a solo after Shikaria is a daunting <laughs> um, thing. It's, it's that. It's you know, it, it, it instills fear <laughs> to this day. And we all felt that way. We were all you know, but you know, you also rise up and you learn a lot about playing and trying to, you know, uh, if you could just get through it and and play something that that's that's really that's something. And then and then if you just get comfortable in that situation, then then you really, I could, you know, when when you do a gig like that, it really, uh, it really shows you how guys like Chick and all the greats that we love got so good, got to be so good because they did that every night, and they had, you know, they, they played with each other and everyone was listening. So, they, the kind of you get really you get better really quickly when you have the opportunity to play with great musicians on a on a consistent basis, mm -hmm. and. That was a great gig for me. Ed Freddie was a great gig for me. I've done, you know, had had some really wonderful opportunities. I'm grateful for that. That, um, you know, and, and Chick called me one day. So, and, you know, this is Chick Corea. Um, you know, uh, yeah, Chick. Hey, man. You know, I might have met I might have met him along the way a couple of times, but I didn't think he knew anything about me. You know, and uh, but he was looking to put together this group, um, and. And his manager told him that you know he heard me with Mike Stern, and uh, and he and, and told me that I played bass clarinet, played flute, and, and he was looking for a guy that did that. So uh, that's the way that happened. You know, just um, really referred by his manager. I think I don't sort of um, uh, just looking for someone to fill a bill of being a doubler and a, play, a jazz player. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, more than most of the sax players I know in L.A., you really associate a lot with players on the East Coast, you know, like Mike Stern, and, I mean, there's a whole host of others, the people on your album, and I understand you split your time between both the East Coast and the West Coast, so how does that work? Do you have, do you spend a certain percentage of the year in New York, or is it just the fact that you travel there for gigs? Well, at one point, I was really trying to do that. I was trying to uh, spend more time in New York and uh, have a little crash pad there. And I, you know, uh, and I just and I grew up around New York, and I and I still love it, and it still inspires me. And uh, I have so many great friends there, and and the music scene there uh, for me is just stimu more stimulating than L.A. There's just more of it, and there's cutting edge players and. I just like the I like the energy of New York, so I I really try to just be there more. But it's almost impossible to be you know bi coastal. It's 
it's gotten to be very difficult to uh, you know plan that and to buy tickets and to um, you know uh, people people just know that you're out of town or they're you're not really there I mean it's uh, so when now I go to New York, I try to set up a gig. I have a gig coming up at uh, Wawa and Turner, this little jazz club downstairs uh, in the village. And uh, but that's rare. It's hard, really hard to pick, uh, to, to to hook up gigs in New York. And frankly, when I go there, I, I sort of just go hear music, and uh, it's like my little cabin in the in the in the mountains. You know, I shed and I go out to hear music and I eat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like to eat. <laughs> I like the food. So, uh, you know, it's a little, it feels like home in a lot of ways. But, you know, now I've been in L.A. a long time. This is really my home. And so, uh, you know, I just try to get to New York when I can. And uh, especially, um, you know, when I go out on the road, I'll, I'll just sort of, okay, if I have to go back east, I'll, I'll book a, book a uh, you know, a few days or or, or a week in New York, you know, surrounding that gig, you know, so that's the way it usually works for me. Yeah, it, it sounds like although you do millions of different things, studio gigs, you know, the gig with uh, American Idol, it, it sounds to me like your musical home is really playing in a small jazz group. Is that is that the case? Or Absolutely. That's that's the most fun for me. You know, if I really, I have a, I'm talking to you from my garage studio. Uh -huh. in my house and uh, and this place is my uh, my therapy room you know uh, we, I play like a couple times a week here with with a bass player and drummer Let's play trio um, uh, and and if I didn't have that I would have gone nuts in LA, you know? and uh, it just you know keeps my uh, my head straight and uh, just play with 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 players you know and there's a great jazz scene here in LA actually there's a lot of people that are interested in, in playing and, uh, and there's a whole influx of young players that are really really making LA a much uh, more you know a stimulating environment you know, of late so I'm really happy about that you know I, I, I like doing you know I like playing music so I try to get involved in other people's bands and you know, that's, that's, even though you're working during the day, you know, that studio scene isn't like it was for me. At one point I was very busy. Now I'm really trying to uh, actively pursue my own music now in my 50s. You know, I should have been doing it for the last 25 years, but by, you know, I, I only only have a few records out under my own name. And, and I've been just working all along, you know, just for different people and having a ball doing it. But now it's... Uh, now I'm sort of, you know, saying it's time to, you know, put some more creative energy out into the world and try to do my own thing. So we'll, so this this record, uh, close your eyes, is sort of, hopefully, the beginning of a, of a of a spurt of uh, creativity. We'll try to keep it going. <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. What was what was the inspiration behind it? Was it more of like a because there's definitely a lot of spontaneous, free-blowing energy behind it. Um, some really hip tunes in there. Um, or did you have a specific kind of concept you were going for that, that strung throughout the whole album? Well, you know, first, uh, I, I, I needed to get a record out. That was my first uh, thing. I, it's been a while since I had a, a CD out, so I just... 
I, I really uh, wanted to record with uh, a, a great drummer, a great New York slash New York drummer. And, uh, Antonio Sanchez, I've been working with, with Billy Childs for some time, and I just love his playing. And he was going to be in L.A. recording with Billy. And I, I sort of used that opportunity to say, okay, he's going to be here. He's willing to do it. And I, and I sort of planned everything around that. And when I knew that, once I, once I booked the date, and then it was an opportunity to just like, okay, what am I going to record? And uh, that was, um, I had to get that together fairly quickly. And I wrote a couple tunes and um, wish I wrote more, but um, I'm fairly good at arranging tunes, you know. And I was just trying to find some, what my, you know, the, 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 the CD really has, uh, people tell me it has a vibe. And I'm really glad to hear that because uh, I tried to, I, I wanted to sort of people to hear this my saxophone sound in a in a in a way that was very um, in front, like a vocalist, and and sort of um, a lot of lot of play really soft sometimes and have it really up front. So um, and and have a lush or sort of rich, sonically pleasing sound. Um, we're sort of against the grain because a lot of jazz records of late are actually very dry and um, and have no reverb, and that's cool too. I enjoy that, but I wanted to have a have it be sonically, you know, um, interesting, and uh, and and we tried a few things in the studio, um, and I think it came off okay. I think people are responding to the to that sort of uh, ear candy, you know, that it has. You know, I wanted the saxophone to be very intimate and um, open and um, and sort of you know almost like a voice you know like like a vocalist would record a little up front I, I, I like the saxophone my some of my favorite records are the, when the saxophone is very um, in, up front as far as sonically sonic placement you know and uh, so anyway uh, other than that it was just a record day that we uh, that went well, you know. Sometimes they don't go well. This one mm. went well. <laughs> yeah, it, it has um, a real subtle intensity to it, which is nice. It's it's intense, but it's still your playing is, has a lot of subtlety to it, and it's you're playing very dynamically. It's not like you're just blowing super loud throughout the whole thing. So uh, that's what I got from it. Thanks, Darren. Uh, yeah, I, I I I never never like my playing on. On, on my on records, so but uh, people say it's they like it, so that's all I care about. <laughs> yeah, I, when I when I listen to myself, oh, I wish I played better. You know. Well, how do you think you're? Because because you do so much studio work and playing as a sideman, how do you think that affects you when it's time to do your own original music? Do you, do you see that sort of filtering your your musical expression or your musical taste? I don't know. There's sort of separate things, you know. Um, you know, I have had a lot of experience recording, you know, with a, you know, in front of a microphone and hearing myself back. So, one thing I I I sort of understand is that recording my sound and getting it on on uh, on tape or hard drive, you know, and 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 so I'm very involved in sound because I've been doing it so long. I, you know, I. I, I really um, have have a feeling about you know what works you know to get your sound um, right and nice and full and and not um, 
you know, sort of accurate, true. You know, I try to get it accurate and sort of nice and warm. You know, I like a warm saxophone sound. And that's what I always try to get. So if, if anything, my, my studio experience helped me learn how to record the saxophone. But it doesn't, musically, it really doesn't enter in that mm-hmm. much. But it is a different experience. You know, we, you know playing live and playing uh, when the red light is on, is really a challenge, you know. And it's just, it's it's a different experience, and, and I think more experience you have recording, uh, it does it does help because sometimes you just you just, you lose you lose like 25, 30 percent right off the top of your your ability when the when the when the tape is rolling, as we used to say. Really, absolutely. So, so you you know the. the you know, it's you're sort of under a microscope in your own mind, mm-hmm. and it's sort of that, that 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 inner dialogue really becomes prominent if you're not in the right space. You know, and some people are better at it than others. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm always I'm always amazed. You know, I go listen to some records that are these crisscross recordings that are done. You know, every year. You know, with guys like uh, you know Seamus Blake and. Uh, and Chris Potter and uh, Richie Perry and and these are all you know just live dates and and they're very difficult music and man it just it's just like they're playing you know in a club somewhere and not not caring about you know where they are but uh, it, I'm sure they are but I mean they're they're just you know I know the, the difficulty level and the kind of complete abandonment of uh, is 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 really really something to me you know and uh and maybe that's what people hear when they, when they hear me too uh you know probably so but i mean i think it, i think if you were to ask you know you know a hundred great saxophone players about the same question that we would all have similar response you know when when the when you know you're being documented for eternity there's a responsibility <laughs> you know and uh and and it can really get to you and so and it does it does cut your ability to. That's why you will listen to you know re- recordings of Train. It's just remarkable. You know? mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't seem to be. He seems to be so much in the moment. Uh, and guys like that, they're in the moment all the time. You know, it's really remarkable to hear that. You know, it just doesn't seem that the process gets in their way. Yeah. I mean, it, I would imagine it's a little bit harder to be in a position where all you're doing is small jazz recordings because what I get from every single person I interview on these podcasts is that it's all about versatility these days, doing tons of different kinds of gigs. I mean, uh, I'm assuming that's your experience too, correct? It's the versatility of being able to do any kind of recording, any type of live performance that's really allowed you to do what you do. Well, for me, I think it's true. Yeah, I mean, there are other, there are other guys that are truly, uh, you know, they just they started out with a vision of being a jazz player uh, and being a recording artist, and they just work totally on that, and they develop that over time. And there are guys that do that, and I and that's marvelous. You know, for me, coming up, and you know, from where I grew up, it was uh, it was just a natural thing for me to. Play music, and, and and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the challenge of playing all different kinds of music, and and, and it was just me. That's my personal thing, you know. Uh, some people, no man, how can how can you go? 
you know, I remember, I literally remember doing a, a, a wedding, you know, uh, the day after I played in front of uh, 2,000 people with Freddie Hubbard, you know, <laughs> they would do a wedding. Okay, all right, fine. And the next day I might uh, have a big band uh, gig, you know, some club, you know, playing. That I mean, it was just, you know, it's, it, was, it was a way to play music and, and, and make a buck. Now, I don't do weddings anymore, really. Uh, um, I've cut a lot of that kind of stuff out. Um, not, not because it's below me or anything like that. It's just, uh, it's just, I don't, there's, <laughs> there's most, most of that kind of work is, uh, has, has gone downhill. Because uh, I used to be able to go on a, on a gig like that and just play standards. Uh-huh. You know, and play a few R&B tunes and play standards and have a great time with some really good players. And, mm-hmm. and I met that was that was fine. For me, you know, I, I didn't mind that. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I still wouldn't mind it. I would do it in a second. But now, now the those kind of gigs have been, you know, uh, watered down to like Motown medleys and, and loud, unmusical situations. So for me, it was, you know, if I could make music and have fun playing music, then then I'm I'm willing to do it. You know, so. Uh, that's that's sort of my criteria, you know, more than anything, you know, as I get older, it's just to have have uh, musical fun experiences and and uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, so. So. Go ahead. Oh well, yeah. I was curious because um, outside of your live playing and your group playing. Uh, individually, what do you find yourself practicing most on the instrument these days? Oh wow! You know, practicing is uh, is something that I want to do more and more, and I have less and less time to do it. Mm-hmm. So it is really a challenge, and and um, you know, uh, I find myself sitting down at the piano and just trying to you know, play some tunes, some standards. And, um, and when I pick up the horn, you know, I'll usually, um, you know, find something, you know, practice based on a tune I'm thinking about. You know, so I'll, and then I'll start playing the tune on, on, on the tenor, sometimes along with a no metronome, sometimes along with a, you know, drum track, you know, Peter Erskine has a nice, uh, uh, drum play along thing and just get play along with some time and I'll just play uh, play a tune and try to along the way I'll find some you know an idea that I might explore and try to move through the changes or um, some intervallic thing that you know that I stumble into and that becomes the next thing I'll practice you know and uh, and if it's my my consistency of practice is is not. Uh, has not been very uh, um, consistent lately, and uh, I'm, I'm actually a little frustrated with that. You know, because uh, um, in a way, in a way, I, I would love to be able to go to uh, you know to a cabin in the woods or my little apartment in New York and just shed for two or three months and, and really, really do that just like for hours a day. I, you know, but when I do practice. Um, I just try to find some stuff that uh, intervallic stuff that that expands my technique, you know, and challenges me in a in a way that that uh, at least I feel after an hour or so that you know I've I've, I've accomplished something. 
So when you say you're practicing intervallic stuff, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Like, what are you actually playing or what is it you're actually practicing uh, as it relates to intervals? Uh, it could be a lot of things. Uh, here's my, I got my tenor. I got my tenor right in front of me here in my studio. Cool. So when you say intervallic, it means taking uh, an idea and just transposing it in different yeah. intervals and, you know, resolving into, you know, the correct, uh, the, the correct chord. Well, it, it, yeah, it could have that application. It could be just a, actually, actually a pure intervallic thing. You know, taking just, uh, you know, uh, one, uh, two notes, three notes. Uh, you know, there's three notes and just moving that around, you know, the horn. And then, and then moving it chromatically, moving it in minor thirds, moving it in whole steps, right? These kind of uh, um, little challenging uh, mathematical thing of games, really. You know that 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 interests your ear. If they if they interest my ear, then then uh, sometimes it's the first notes out of the horn for the day, and I'll mm -hmm. just move that around. You know. Um, sometimes it's an actual thing I, I find some somebody played that I'll transcribe. Sometimes it's something that that uh, you know, like this Bob Minster thing that he got from Russ Ferranti. I mean, we're all doing this kind of stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, in some way, I think I think you know jazz musicians are always you know trying to find new pathways. Mm -hmm. you know, so, and it, and it, it's you know because what happens if you you start playing the same stuff? Mm -hmm. You start boring yourself, and if you're boring yourself, you're boring everybody else. You know, so um, you know the I the, the, the try to keep adding to the toolbox, you know, with new direction, new things to play. So to do that, you have to really, you know, find things and, and challenge your technique and your chops to to go there, or else you'll never go there, you know. Yeah. So those kind of things are something that I do, you know. <laughs> So, you know, that's that's something that I heard Vincer do and then what's that? Well, it's like, oh he showed it to me and now I'm working on it. So when you play something like that that's moving through so many keys, are you thinking about it in relation to the chord that's being played at the moment, or are you just thinking about it melodically and not considering the chord so much at the time and then at a later point in your solo you'll jump back into the chords? If that makes any sense at all. Well, and in this particular instance, that's obviously a diminished lick, right? Uh -huh. That goes going down in minor thirds. Anything in minor thirds is diminished, which means it's dominant, right? Which means for any dominant, you know, uh, chord or uh, so, you know, where I would, I would, first I would get it under my hands and I would go, well, what is, what's the sound of it? Is it, what, the, what would it fit on, you know? And then, I, and then, I would try to put it in a tune that I, I really know that that I that I don't have to think about so much, and then just sort of stick it in to that 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 two five or that dominant change, you know, and get used to using it in a practical way. Mm -hmm. So over time, that will filter into your playing, 
you know, because you get used to using it. It's just like learning a new language or new, learning a new word, right? You, you first, when you learn a new word, oh, that's a cool word, and, but you're a little bit afraid to use it, you know, without sounding pretentious, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you try to use it, and oh, it's that boy, did that feel lame, you know, felt like a, it wasn't me. And then you use it again, use it again, and, you know, pretty soon you're using that word, and it just, uh, you know, becomes part of your, your lexicon, your, your normal, you know, speech pattern. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, I, I know we're winding down here, and I've got so many more things <laughs> I could ask you, um, but... I always like to see, um, and I think you've gone into this a bit already, but I was just wondering if you could share uh, for young sax players who want to make this their life and do this full time, do you have any parting words of wisdom as far as the key uh, skills and personality traits that they need to have to make it professionally? Oh, boy. You know, that that's a, that question is... Um, to me, when you're when you're starting out and, and, and you're inspired to play music and you really love it, uh, you just you just go after it because of that. Mm-hmm. You, you, you can't think you can't put the the cart before the horse. There's no way to plan on being being a jazz star or being uh, playing on um, you know a television band or or being at Kenny G. You know that I mean it's cool to have have, uh, you know, that kind of um, desire and to have that sort of motivation. There's nothing wrong with it. But, uh, you know, it all, all all your plans, you know, change. It, it, you know, I I remember wanting to play with, uh, you know, Thad Mel's band, you know, that was my dream and true. You know, at some point I remember wanting to play with, uh, you know, um, Jazz Messengers and playing with uh, ended up playing with Freddie Hubbard. So it's not it's not something that's unimportant. I think it's good to have a uh, a dream, you know. Of, but it it's that the dream doesn't get you there. It's just like loving playing and then doing the hard work and then and then putting yourself. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, other elements of luck and. And elements of uh, getting along with people, you know, you know, not not having being being humble is very important. Mm-hmm. You know, humility is something that's extremely important if you're going to be a working musician. Um, and you know, being responsible, you know, and uh, and uh, respecting you know the situation, the musical situation. You know, I've seen young players go on. Uh, and, and have an attitude about ah, oh, this music is below me, or it's uh, you know it's not hip enough, or whatever. And uh, and 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 basically that comes off disrespectful to other people, and that does not help. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's just basically respecting, you know, the music and respecting you know your 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 role in the music. And if you if you do all that, you know, good things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And this has been best saxophone podcast ever. I'm Duran Ornstein, and we're leaving you with Surface Tension from Bob Shepard off his latest album, Close Your Eyes.
Thank you. 